The battle of wizards and warriors continues with iron swords. The evil wizard Malkil will take the shape of the earth, wind, water, and fire. Farewell! The fate of the world is in your hands! You're listening to the Piercing Wizard Podcast, and I'm your host, Ryan Willette. I'm a professional body piercer with 20 years experience. I travel around the world teaching technique and safety classes, and I'm a member of the Association of Professional Piercers. Listen in as I talk to my friends and colleagues about our industry so we can all stay sharp. Hi. Uh, So a few weeks back, I had the idea to do an Ask Me Anything session. I had done one over Zoom with Lola Slider a few weeks back, and we seemed to get a good response from it. So I thought we would do a podcast version of it. We got a good amount of questions submitted by you. Uh, I think we have enough to do two full episodes, so I was planning on doing a two-part episode. So we'll do half this week, and we'll do the other half next week. And I've got Lola Slider with me. Say hi, Lola. Hi, Lola. Um, so we're going to we're gonna go back and forth on reading the questions out, and then we're both just going to kind of discuss them um, as a subject. So I'd just like to say before we get started that these are opinion-based questions. So these are just our thoughts on what the questions are. They're, they're not necessarily set in stone. So um, as with anything, they're up for interpretation. Yeah, and, and keep in mind that, you know, I'm an APP member. Lola's an APP member. Lola's also the UK APP president. It doesn't mean that we're speaking for organizations. We're just speaking based on our own personal professional experience. Yes. Uh, when it comes to this kind of stuff, it's it, these aren't rules. So this is just, you know, what works for us and, you know, our personal experience. Uh, so if you have a, a varying opinion, uh, definitely explore that, share that with others. Um, but these are just our opinions. So the first question uh, the first question we have here is, uh, I think it's going to be a really good one, especially with the conversations that are happening on the internet right now. Um, how does a nonprofit organization like the APP work? Uh, I think it's really important to understand that uh, the, the keyword in there is, is organization. It's a group of people, um, and it's not like a shadow group. It's not like um, some mysterious organization. It's like five or six or seven people that you know, that you can reach out to, that you can talk to, and these are um, uh, member-appointed organizations with volunteers. So it's not like some massive bureaucracy. It's like a handful of people doing this stuff. So um, do you want to talk about APP or UK APP first? Well, I think that there's probably a lot more to talk about with the APP because it's just such a larger organization and it's been going for so much longer. But I think it's also important to point out that even though it's a larger organization than the UK APP at this time, we're both still bound by very similar parameters, um, although one's US-based and one's UK-based. Um, the fact that we're a non-profit health and safety organization at the UK APP um, that, those aren't just words that we get to use. There are specific parameters that we have to have in place to operate. Um, so it's very much not just some kind of club um, that we just kind of make up as we go along. We are a board. We have to function as a board. We're a real registered organization. Um, everything that we do has to be recorded. Everything is member driven. and. It's really hard sometimes getting that across to people who are maybe skeptical about joining that maybe think that it is a little bit more club based or even popularity based or anything like that. It, it literally can't be. If, if people join and then those people choose to nominate any other member, including themselves, to be on the board, then they can be selected to, to be on the board. And the board is driven by um, 
member demand basically what's important to the members what do they want us to be doing like that's literally what we're there for um so i think that's a really important thing to get across is that we're we're not independent of all of that yeah to to start from kind of the ground up when it comes to the app uh you have seven board of directors members you have a treasurer and you have a secretary uh, the treasurer and the secretary and the president are the only uh, required components to have an actual uh, 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 structured nonprofit organization. So you have to have a president, a treasurer, and a secretary. All the other positions are basically just the uh, elected board officials, and they basically created positions. the The board positions are not dictated by any sort of bylaws or or rules or legal requirements so uh, even the vice president but also the the outreach coordinator the legislative coordinator the medical liaison those are positions that are determined by the board uh, to fulfill the the organization's needs for uh, uh, outreach we have things like the social media committee uh, does a lot of work there. So whenever you see something posted on Instagram or even uh, the brochures talking about aftercare, uh, all the different things that are presented for either clientele or for other piercers, uh, that is some form some form of outreach. So you need uh, you need a committee there, and uh, there will be a, a liaison on the the board for that. Then you have legislative, and, and that is the position that would handle talking to any sort of um, state or local municipalities, uh, different health councils, health departments, the people that are uh, creating the laws that govern body piercing in any particular region. The legislative coordinator is there to uh, be a resource for, for those people. Uh, and then you have other roles that kind of come and go. Um, for a while, there was a, a public re uh, relations coordinator, uh, and there have been other positions that have, have come and gone over the years. Um, basically, once the, the board members get elected, they have a meeting and they basically determine, okay, what are our goals as an organization during this term, during the next uh, three or so years, and um, what projects will we be working on, and, and so what kinds of board members do we need to uh, fulfill those projects? So the board positions will vary. When it comes to something like the presidency, uh, when, you, when you vote as an APP member to elect someone onto the board, you're not voting specifically for a president or a vice president. You're just voting for a board member. And then amongst those board members, they determine who will be in what role. So uh, they'll all kind of talk and determine, all right, this person has a, a longer tenure, uh, is well-respected in the industry, um, is just a good face for the organization, so they will be the president. But that's all appointed within the board itself. Now, it's membership that elects people to the board. Uh, so when it comes to a, an organization, you have the treasurer uh, controlling and documenting any sort of monies given to the organization, monies spent by the organization. Uh, the secretary is going to keep uh, a, a detailed document of what's going on with the board of directors, um, what's being discussed in meetings, and those minutes are public to members. So if you are an APP member and you think that there's some like mysterious, like deep state within the APP, uh, realize that all you have to do is, is ask the secretary or ask the board of directors for those minutes. And you can see what's being discussed in, in all these meetings. Uh, it's not secret stuff. If you want to know exactly how much money the APP has or what the APP is spending its money on, as a member, uh, you are, uh, you are uh, entitled to that information. 
Uh, if you come to the APP conference when they are being held, when there isn't a global pandemic, there's a, there's a, there's a members meeting uh, where all those things will be discussed. What are the current projects? Exactly how much money is on the books? Exactly how much money is coming in and, and going out? All those things. So that's some of the structure there. And then it gets kind of more complicated when it comes to the, the committee work. But uh, we can talk about that more in a minute. What's what's the UK APP structure like? Um, I'd say it's it's a little similar. Um, we have six board members and we're, we're required to have six board members to be operational, basically. So uh, at the moment, we just had a, a board member step down from their role. David Osborne stepped down as um, our social media outreach um, board member a couple of weeks ago. And so we relayed the information to our members and basically let them know that at present we have several um, member applications that are very near completion. So what we're going to do is just temporarily um, hold off on any further voting related issues, wait until those membership applications are processed so that the new members also get an opportunity to vote on who they would like the new um, social media outreach to be since they're going to be representing them too for up to the next three years. Um, and then as soon as they are, we'll get back to voting on issues again. Um, but again, you know, it's just really transparent and sometimes it can be frustrating getting people to understand that we're all piercers as well, especially in what's happened in the last four months with the global pandemic. And I'd imagine it's the same with the APP. All of the board members are piercers. So they're all dealing with everything that they're normally dealing with. And then they're also dealing with um, the COVID-19 pandemic too. And we're all just volunteering our time as best we can to try and strengthen our position as best as we can with communicating with local authorities. So there's really never been a better or more important time to join, really. Um, I think the event that's happened in the UK, the last few weeks in particular, just showing how poorly the government have communicated, not just with our industry, but with really every service industry, it really highlights exactly what it is that we're here for. Um, so hopefully that'll be even more encouragement for people to join. Uh APP membership seems to be like not skyrocketing, but increasing at a, at a really healthy, really steady rate. And what I would like everybody for for APP membership to understand is that uh, if you feel like the the APP, whatever whatever you think of when you think of the APP, if you think that they're not serving your interests, realize that it's a member driven organization, and that you can and should get involved. Um, so when it comes to the, the voting process for the board of directors, any member can nominate any other member to, uh, to run for the board. There is no um, requirement for experience or how long you've been a member or any of that stuff to be eligible. Uh, if you are a member, you can nominate any other member uh, to, to, to run for the board. So if you feel like the APP isn't speaking to your issues, um, isn't speaking with the voice that you would want them to speak with, uh, you can nominate yourself to, to run for the board if you don't have someone else to, to nominate you. And when those elections come around, uh, you really have to be engaged. Just like voting is important in every other in every other part of life and any sort of form of politics, any sort of form of bureaucracy, uh, it's the same thing with our organizations. So it, it does get a little bit frustrating for me as a, as a member and as a former board member to see uh, some of the criticism that gets thrown at the APP and make it sound like, well, the APP is not doing this or the APP is not doing that. And what I would say to people is like, well, 
what have you done to contribute? Uh, and realize that, you know, shouting things on Facebook is not necessarily the same as contributing. Sometimes there can be some really important conversations happening on Facebook, uh, but it's really not the same thing as actually sitting down and writing an email to the board of directors. And you can send that to secretary at safepiercing.org. If there is any issue that you think needs to be discussed uh, by the board, um, anything important that needs to be moved forward, you need to write to the APP through their uh, documented uh, means. Like if just putting it on a, a Facebook comment or sending someone a Facebook message and, and saying, like, well, I told the APP two years ago about this. It's not the same thing as submitting uh, an actual email to the organization. So if you want something discussed, spoken on, if you want uh, new policies put in forth, if you want new projects put in forth, uh, there are lots of different committees out there. There's a membership committee. Um, there's a legislative committee, outreach committee. All those different things that have board positions also have committees. So you can get involved in those things. There's a, there's a volunteer survey. If you want to do some work within the structure of the APP, you fill out that volunteer survey. You talk about any sort of skills you might have. Hey, I'm good with computers. Hey, I'm good with video editing. Hey, I'm good with social media or I, I speak these languages. Uh, you fill out the survey uh, and then you say what you might want to be involved in. And then whenever they need help with projects, they can pull from those people in the, in the volunteer pool. Did you have something you want to touch on? I was just going to say to be as clear as possible, just for anyone that genuinely doesn't know, the reason that you're always in asked to submit an email to a board member or a member of the committee in terms of the APP that you're trying to communicate with isn't to make things any more awkward or more difficult for you. It's so that it, there's a documented record of what took place. Um, so basically, I'm the UK APP president currently, before I was the medical liaison. So the current medical liaison has access to any emails that were sent to me when I was medical liaison. I have access to any emails that were sent to the, the predecessor, um, Nicole Holmes as president before me. And that means that, you know, if someone has raised an issue or a concern or complaint and it hasn't been addressed, I can't then say, well, you know, you never told me about it. I, I never heard about it. It's actually to protect you as a member and make sure that that doesn't happen and that board members can't use that as an excuse and it prevents miscommunication happening and important issues being lost or forgotten about and actually reduces accountability when that email trail isn't present. So that's why it's so important when someone says, okay, email this person, they're not brushing you off. They're actually trying to escalate it and take it more seriously. So. If somebody does ask you to email a concern, that's the reason why that they're doing it. Uh, a, a term that gets thrown around lately is uh, receipts. Um, that is your receipt. <clears throat> that is proof that I brought this issue to the board of directors or a particular member of the board of directors or a committee or, or something like that. Just having it in a, a Facebook comment or just mentioning it in a, in a conversation, a text message, a phone call, an Instagram message, that is not the same thing as actually submitting to those organizations. So if you have an, an issue that's important to you, get involved in it. All the work, just like Lola said, is being done by volunteers, is being done by body piercers. Uh, so that means that in conjunction to their everyday life, their their family stuff, their their home life stuff, in conjunction to their, their work, maybe they own a shop, maybe they work full time in a shop, uh, in conjunction to just what you're dealing with with COVID right now, all the different like upheavals in, in your life and all those different stresses. In addition to all of those things, there are still people who care enough about body piercing to volunteer what little time they have left 
to helping run these organizations. So you really need to kind of, I'm not saying cut them slack, but you need to understand how to communicate with them properly and communicate with them efficiently. Uh, and just like telling a friend and hoping they tell a friend and hoping it gets back to someone and hoping it gets kind of picked up and, and turned into an issue, that's not the same thing as bringing an issue to the board uh, or actually getting involved in this stuff. Like the work is done by the people who show up. And if you refuse to show up, Who's, who's that leaving to do the work? Uh, maybe someone who's already working on 20 other things. So if you have a, a, an issue that's passionate for you and that you really want to see move forward, uh, realize that if you are a member of these organizations, you have as much right to access as any other member. Um, you know, If you are a, a member since six months ago or you're a member since 20 years ago, um, you have the same level, level of membership and you have the same level of access to the board of directors, uh, to voting rights, uh, to to bringing these issues forward, like it's it's a member driven organization. So you are, if you are a member, you are the APP. Uh, don't leave the APP air quotes up to to someone else. Uh, you need to carry that stuff forward, and it's really important to understand that uh, in in this day and age, especially. I think that you know, just as a final thought for me regarding the UK APP on the subject, is one of my favorite things is when somebody will. Be quite combative with me and quite argumentative with me about the UK APP and its policies. One of my favorite things is actually saying, well, that's exactly why you need to join. You need to join, you need to try and get on the board and we can discuss these topics. And And I think a lot of the time people don't expect that response necessarily. They expect me to just say, okay, well, don't join. But the more somebody argues with me, the more I'm going to say, well, that's exactly why you need to join because that is the purpose. It's not to make things easy for myself. It's to, to ask questions that I wouldn't have thought to ask. Yeah. Uh, you know, if, if you don't like the way something is going, um, get involved and change it. It's the easiest way. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I became a member originally is I had maybe some different ideas for classes to, to do a conference or, or this or that. And uh, I needed to be a member to really enact that change. So that's what I did. I became a member. I became a board member and I got involved. I volunteered for committees. I volunteered to help do the work instead of just kind of shouting at someone to, to do the work for you. Do you want to hit the next question? The next question is, how to become a better leader in your studio if you work at a tattoo shop or on your own? Uh, I'm a little confused as to how you be a better leader when you work on your own, but we can come to that. How to approach people when wanting to be part of the industry? What advice or approach do you feel is best? That's certainly something I have some thoughts on if you maybe want to talk about the first half. Uh, well, it, it seems like there are a couple different questions in this one question. How to become a better leader in your studio uh, if you work at a tattoo shop? Uh, or on your own, or maybe they, they just mean like you're you're the owner of a piercing studio and you have a team or something. But when it comes to working in a tattoo shop, I'll, I'll leave that to you. Um, I've, I've always owned my own studio, basically. Like I've, I've owned my own studio for about 20 years. I did a little bit of work in other studios for a handful of, of time before that. But when it comes to being a, a better leader in your own studio, I think the best thing you can do is be a, a listener. Uh, when people bring ideas to you, they're not all going to be great ideas, but some of them might be great ideas and you need to be open to new concepts and you need to, uh, listen to people's ideas to make them feel like they're really part of a team and not just part of your staff. 
uh, like when my other peers or Evan brings ideas to me, I want to listen. And if I don't think it's a great idea, I want to talk about why. You know, I'll say, well, I've tried that in the past and I don't think it was really effective or, you know, maybe that won't work in our studio because of this or that. But I also want to have a conversation about it. Like, why do you think this is going to be a good idea? Uh, what do you think we need to do to, to enact this idea? And I, I think that that whole golden rule of treat others how you want to be treated yourself. I, I think it's a lot more satisfying to work in a studio where you feel like you have a voice and you can contribute to the, the progress of that studio rather than just being told what to do. So what are your thoughts? Because you, you spend a lot more time working in tattoo studios, like as in someone else's tattoo studio. Well, I think it's a really conflicting subject because this is something that I did a class on as well. Um, when you're working in a, a place that you don't own, um, for example, if you're even renting a room or being employed by a tattoo studio, it's kind of hard to, to find ways to grow that um, benefit you primarily because it's really easy to get lost in trying to improve a business that you don't actually own because it seems so important and you can really give so much of yourself away into doing that. Um, so it's very difficult to try and find a balance between what's best for you and what's best for the business that's not your business. So it is conflicting because you also still want to grow. Um, I would say if you're working in a, a studio that you don't own and you want to <clears throat> improve your leadership skills or become more of a leader, um, but at the same time you don't have any real authority, one of the best things that you can do is try and lead by example with your behavior. And one of the number one ways you can do that is by not gossiping. Gossiping is probably the, the single biggest source of um, conflict and drama in studios um, for, you know, since forever, including today. And it's usually over the silliest stuff and it builds and builds and builds and creates tension. Um, and it can often be over the most ridiculous stuff. I mean, there are sometimes you get so worked up and upset about something and then when you actually really think about it, it's maybe because like your bin hasn't been emptied or someone or you've had to empty someone else's bin. That means some, trash can. <laughs> or, or just some tiny little thing that when you really strip it back, it's not actually worth the amount that you've paid it out in stress and anxiety. So I think, first of all, if somebody is gossiping at you, um, you need to basically just not engage with that. Um, and that means not taking part in the gossip. It doesn't necessarily mean having a conflict with that person. It could just mean saying, well, why don't you talk to them about it? If somebody comes to you and says, oh, this person's done this thing, it's really annoyed me. Instead of going, oh yeah, what did they do? And that's terrible. You should say, well, maybe you should go and talk to them about it, you know, before things get out of hand. Um, I think that's probably one of the most powerful things that you can do is just try and diffuse gossip where you can and not get sucked up in it. Um, and the same goes for more serious issues. I actually watched a really good um, IGTV, I don't know if you call it an episode, um, posted by one of the tattooers I used to work with called Rizaboo, who's great. And she actually um, made an episode about what to do when the, the company that you're working for isn't necessarily being um, positive and receptive to Black Lives Matter issues and um, to, to other serious issues as well. And um, the episode was basically about what you should do in that situation, that you should immediately express those concerns to your manager. And if your manager doesn't listen, you should express your concerns to the owner of the studio and just keep going with it as much as you can to be heard until you kind of get to the end of that chain. But you have to try and work through that chain um, 
to deal with those issues and, and try and be heard about them. Uh, it's really important to not try and resolve the issue yourself or to just bury the issue. You have to go with them as far as you can. Um, and I thought that that was a really poignant episode for her to make at this point in particular with a lot of us returning back to work, maybe with a little bit of a different view of some things than we did pre-lockdown. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if you want to if you want to pick up a theme between what Lola was talking about and what I was talking about, it's just, it's communication. I think communication is one of the best leadership skills that you can have. Um, and if you want to grow into a leadership role, I would say work on your communication because like Lola also said, gossip can really tear a studio apart and it's the opposite of leadership because it kind of splits people into camps really. The, the second part of this, uh, how to approach people when wanting to be part of the industry uh, I don't necessarily want to get into maybe like the how to get an apprenticeship question, but I, I think maybe if we're talking about going from being a, a newer piercer into like a, a more experienced studio, do you think that that's apt or do you think that that's not really what they're going for? I interpreted it as being a how to break into the industry kind of question. Okay. Well, how did, how did you break into the industry? Well, um... I broke into the industry by basically what I suggest to other people is by being as present as possible and really supporting your local studios. Um, For me, being part of the industry starts with being a customer. If you're a customer, you are part of the industry, like a really important part of the industry. It can't function without customers. And if you aren't going to your local studios or studios that you respect to services that you actually want to learn how to do, if you aren't going to those studios to basically give them your money to pay for those services and to be a customer and be that part of the the community, then that's really not a good start. I don't think that you're going to get very far trying to get into the industry because they literally won't know who you are. Um, I've had so many emails over the years, which are just literally blank emails that say, how do I get an apprenticeship? Are you taking on an apprentice? And the person at the other end of that email could literally be the greatest person on earth and I would never know about it. Um, I would never entertain the idea of giving an apprenticeship to somebody who wouldn't even make the effort to just come into the studio and say hi this is something that I'm really interested in that's not how uh, I got my first apprentice Um, I I picked my first apprentice because they'd been coming to the studio for several years and made repeated comments about wanting to be part of the industry and really showed interest and enthusiasm regarding things like jewelry and piercing technique and all that kind of stuff. And sure enough, when it came time to get an apprentice, they stuck out in my head. Um, and the same goes for the person that I'm working with now. And that's generally, I think, how most apprenticeships come to be. Um, so I think it's really important to visually be present, like be that person, actually put yourself out there, go into the studio, say hi. And again, A huge part of that is communication and just not being scared to because I was terrified when I was a teenager going into these places and asking for work but I still did it and if I hadn't done it then I wouldn't have ever got my foot in the door anywhere yeah uh, for me now that I'm like really thinking about it every person that I've hired and and that means counter staff and that means uh, piercing apprentices it's all been because I knew them and I got a good sense off of their professionalism uh, their their passion for for body piercing and and you know that they wanted to to be part of it um, I, I get those same emails that just say 
hey, are you, are you looking to take on an apprentice? And it's the same thing. Like, I don't even reply to those emails anymore because I get so many and it's the same answer of like, well, you know, you have to have some sort of a, a relationship with these people. Like every shop, every, every shop out there, whether they're high experience, low experience, you know, just dealing with um, fashion or quick turnaround, high quality, low quality, whatever, they're all going to have uh, 50 people trying to, to get an apprenticeship. Um, you know, maybe not all at once, but they're all going to deal with lots of people that want that spot. And you need to kind of set yourself aside. And I, I don't think Lola is saying, and I'm certainly not saying that you should go in and be a pest in these shops and, and constantly hover around when you're not necessarily welcome for that. But they need to know who you are. They need to know that you care. They need to know that you have some brains uh, and that you could contribute to, to their team and, and the overall industry. Uh, there are quicker ways to get into the, the industry. You know, sometimes it's like um, a really high turnover shop where they're just going to hire you and fire you within the course of a couple of months. Uh, I don't really think that that's the same thing as looking to really get into a, a career uh, and, and really get into the industry. But if you do want to get one of those spots, if you want to work in a shop that cares about body piercing, um, and if you want to be able to grow and have access to information, and you want to have the tools you need to be able to grow, uh, you need to you need to be the kind of person that would show those shops that you can be trusted with that information, with that responsibility, and you do need to start to create some sort of a, a relationship. So being the, the kind of client where the shop remembers your name, uh, being involved in the local industry, I, th I think we all have clients where we know like, oh yeah, you know, there's there's Doug or there's Jane who came into the shop and like, oh, they're a lovely client and maybe they're also clients in, in local shops and then piercers can start to talk about like, oh yeah, I know that person, they're really cool. Uh, that's really going to give you the, the foot in the door, you know, being remembered as someone who is uh, in, intelligent and, and trustworthy and, and cares about body piercing goes, that goes a long, long way. Another thing that I would say as well that can be useful for people either trying to get into the industry or maybe piercers that are already in the industry, but they're wanting to move to a different location or um, maybe just move to another studio where they can learn more is try and um, think a little bit more laterally in terms of um, applying for jobs as to what you can offer from yourself. Because just like applying for any job, um, you really need to give yourself as many positive attributes as you can. You need to make that studio think that you're going to be worth the effort um, and that you're going to do a good job for them. And that goes beyond just the act of being good at piercing people you know we know there's so much more to the job than that so think about your other skills can you speak multiple languages you know like i can only speak one language unfortunately um, my co-worker can speak multiple languages which is fantastic because it just gives my customers more of an opportunity to converse with somebody comfortably so something like being bilingual or trilingual um, is a fantastic asset. So mention that if you speak more than one language, mention that when you're applying for a job. If you have IT skills, if you're good at web design, every studio needs that. So mention that. Um, if you're good at DIY, you know, like if you're a qualified electrician or plumber, any of those things are going to be things that could potentially um, be really valuable because all studios require maintenance. So um, I think that any positive attribute that you can think of um, that you have that you can use to, to promote yourself is definitely worth including. Yeah, sales and customer service. Like uh, shops will have no shortage of people that just like body piercing. Uh, you know, people that just don't want to have to wear a, a shirt and tie or, 
you know, fancy, fancy dress or something like that when they go to work. Like that's not going to be appealing to a lot of studios. But if you say, hey, I've got this much retail experience, I'm great with customer service, I'm great with sales, I'm great with social media, I, I speak Spanish, I, you know, I, this and that and whatever, um, you're going to be seen as, as maybe more of a, a valuable asset and maybe they'll give you a second look. Right. I mean, I could teach a person to pierce. I could teach a person to sell jewelry better, but there's a lot of stuff that I can't teach that would be hugely valuable for me to actually learn or uh, have a co-worker who was good at. So um, it's important to consider those things, I think. Uh, next question is, this is really going to be a difficult one to answer definitively. And again, this is just our opinions, but uh, how should a piercer go about piercing a client with a deviated septum? Uh, I had some thoughts. Yeah. Oh, that. I bet you do. Yeah. Well, uh, number one, I'd say cross your fingers. Well, again, it's a word that we're going to be using an awful lot, I think, but communication is really important. One of the examples I like to give is that when a client comes in and they want a navel piercing done, you take a look at their navel. If their navel has some kind of abnormality, like maybe the, the peak of their navel is off to one side and they have like a little bit of a, what would you call it? Like that kind of little umbilical bulge section that maybe gets in the way of a larger gem on the bottom or something like that. Like a partial Audi or... Yeah, like, yeah. but it could still be pierced. Sure. You, you wouldn't just say, yeah, sure, we can do it, hope for the best and do it. You would have the conversation with them and say, okay, well, cause of your anatomy, you know, this isn't going to work a certain way. You might be restricted to wearing, at least in the beginning, this type of jewelry. Is that okay with you? And, you know, so the point I'm making is that with every other piercing on the body, we just accept the fact that sometimes the anatomy won't lend itself well to what we're doing. And sometimes it's not advisable at all. Um, sometimes there's just not really any way to achieve the look that your client wants to achieve. Or sometimes it's possible, but you have to make some concessions with style. So why is it that we accept that immediately with every other part of the body, yet somehow with septum piercings, we think we have to just do every single one that comes in. We think we have to nail every single one that comes in. It's completely okay if somebody comes in and their septum is really kind of severely deviated or contorted in such a way that it's going to be very challenging for them to wear um, any style of jewelry other than maybe a snug fitted seam ring and there are septums where that is the case where you can get it perfectly straight on one parallel but or sorry on one plane but it's not possible to do it on both planes because of their anatomy sometimes you can work around it sometimes you can't why is it not okay to just say to that person you know these are your options i'm reasonably anticipating that we're going to be able to see more of the ring on the left than the right just because of the way that your nostrils are shaped naturally is that okay is that something that you're prepared to live with what are your thoughts why is it that we can have that question or that conversation with every other piercing on the body and it doesn't make us feel terrible at all we're just doing our job yet somehow we've been tricked into thinking that septums are somehow magical and have to be done every time well, I, so I teach a class uh, called Septum Piercing Where Skill Meets Luck. And that's really one of the main points that I try to drive home is think of when a client comes in for a navel, but also like an industrial is also a really good option. Everybody has a different shaped ear and not everyone's ear shape is going to lend to be able to, to do an industrial properly. So you can have a conversation with someone, oh, okay, this might not work, or maybe this variation on it will work. 
Uh, think of it as the, the same thing when it comes to an actual uh, septum piercing. When people come in for a septum piercing, I want to start with uh, an, an anatomy consultation. I don't want to start with jewelry selection and just go right into it thinking that like, you know, whatever they want, whatever their hopes and dreams are is something that I can execute because sometimes their noses are going to be really wonky. Sometimes you're not going to notice like what kind of wonky they are until you get your fingers up in their nose or if you really take a good look at it from the, from the bottom. So have a conversation with them first. Uh, take a really good look at it. If you need to, you know, use your fingers and, and touch around in their nose a little bit, go ahead and check that out. Sometimes people will have a deviation kind of higher up in the nose, and you might not feel that until you start to poke and, and prod around in there. So once I uh, determine the viability on someone's nose, or if there's like shades of gray with that viability, then I'll give them their options based on that. And sometimes that's going to start with, well, you know, you have a, a pretty significant deviation here. Uh, I can certainly do my best to try to get it as straight as possible, but if you're the kind of person who wants perfect or nothing, I would probably not suggest this piercing for you and, and maybe let's let's do an alternative. Um, if you're okay with it being close to perfect, but maybe not 100% perfect, uh, are you okay with that? You know, I can have options where I can maybe de-emphasize if there are slight variations or a slight angle. Uh, we can talk about different sizes, different placements, different jewelry options, all those things. But uh, that's part of just being a professional. You don't need to just say um, yes or no. You, you can say yes, but uh, or no, but how about this instead and, and really have those conversations. And it's really just going to make you seem like more of a professional. Yeah, I think it's just important for piercers to recognize they're already having those conversations with pretty much all the other piercings that they do, which is why it's so weird that septums have taken on the kind of mythology that they have. But I think that you're right in that nine times out of ten, when someone messes up a septum in an avoidable way, it's because they've picked the jewelry and they're literally feeling the septum for the first time when they're about to pierce it. And by that point, you know, in their eyes, it's too late to kind of turn back. Maybe they don't feel that they have have time to turn back um, and select a different size or a different piece of jewelry and then they're just kind of committed to making it work so the more information that you can get beforehand and the more you can share with your client I think the more you're going to protect yourself from disaster but there have definitely it's not often but there have definitely been a couple of times where I've said to a customer we could probably do this and there's a chance that it would work out perfectly but honestly I think that there's a, a significant risk it's not going to be a good result for you. I wouldn't say don't ever, ever get it done. I'm just trying to be realistic about what I can do for you. If another piercer is confident that they can do this for you and are really solid that they can get a good result from it, then it could be that they're better at doing this than me. So I think that it's important as well to convey with septums that different piercers are going to be comfortable with different things. So I don't like to say to customers, you know, you should never, ever have this done. Don't ever trust anyone to do this for you. But I can say... I don't want to do it. Here's why I don't want to do it. Um, and here's why I think that maybe this isn't a, an ideal piercing for you to have and actually show them the kind of concerns that I have. You can use marking for that, for example. You could even um, experiment with placement rings and that kind of thing as well to demonstrate the problem if you need to. Um, so the main thing is don't let yourself be backed into a corner of thinking that you have to do every single septum piercing because you don't set that standard for yourself in any other aspect of work that you do. Well, a big thing to draw a comparison to would be genital piercing. 
Um, it is pretty much universally accepted uh, with with body piercers that uh, if you don't feel that uh, it's appropriate for you to perform a particular genital piercing, that you would just refer it out to someone else. And uh, just like Lola said, like where has the mythology entered it where it's like you have to you have to be able to handle every single septum that walks through your door? I've said that plenty of times. Uh, I'm gonna say it's it's a no for me because of my technique, my experience level, my jewelry options, my whatever. Um, I don't think that I can give you the best job possible, but uh, I do know plenty of other piercers where they love to just work on extra, extra challenging septums. So maybe go and have a conversation with them. Maybe they would have a different opinion than I would. So again, that's not showing that you're a weak piercer. That's showing that you are a strong professional and that you know when to say no. Uh, and it's really important to, to understand that difference. And um, just to give one piece of advice as well that's not related to just not doing the work. Um, for me personally, when I, I, I'll usually do septum piercings freehand. And if somebody decides that, if someone decides that, I, well, it's interesting, but I actually started doing it that way because I was getting a really high volume of deviated septums. And I was honestly just feeling like the clamps were just distorting the tissue to not being deviated. And I just, I couldn't find a way um, myself of um, clamping deviated septums so that I wasn't kind of forcing them to straighten. And another problem I had was I started piercing septums with cannulas when I first started piercing um, with clamps and cannulas. Then I transitioned to blades with clamps. And that's when I really had a problem because there's so much more needle drift. And then when I started freehanding with blades, I got a lot more comfortable as well, which was just one of those kind of weird progression things for me. But I'll freehand septum piercings, but if a septum piercing is really quite deviated and the customer has decided they hate me and they want to go ahead with it anyway, and they're just, you know what, let's just try it. I'm prepared to have it done. I know that it might not be perfect, but I'm prepared to give it a go, which is completely their choice. And if they're happy to make that decision, then I'm a lot more comfortable to go ahead with it for them. And honestly, the majority of the time we can get a good result for them. I'll usually say, you know, if we can get it to look 100%, it'll look a solid 90%. We'll get some jewelry in it that works really well um, so that it's not something that doesn't still look attractive. Um, in those situations, I will mark the inside of the septum. Um, I'll mark the outside of the nose as well. I'll mark exactly where I want it to go and I will pierce the marks exactly, um, just as if I was doing any other piercing on the body. And when I do that, I find that I'm always between that 90 and 100 percent. It's it's never going to be wildly off if I've literally pierced where it looks like I want it to go. There could still be a little bit of pulling and movement um, when the client moves their face and talks and eats and that kind of thing when you're working with a deviated septum. But for me, if I was to just go in freehand with minimal or no marking um, on a deviated septum, there would be a much higher chance of there being a wildly unpredictable outcome. So the more unpredictable the anatomy is, the more kind of accurate and precise I'll be with exact marking and just stick to that exact marking and do exactly what it says. And that's going to keep me between that kind of 90 and 100 percent. See, I, I have like a totally different uh, process on it when it comes to deviated septums. What I'll do is I'll, I'll poke and prod and I'll, I, I find that most deviated septums, um, there's this like pressure shift where you almost feel like a, 
snap or a pop or like you feel the, the anatomy moving around. So we, if you're putting your fingers up there and you're rolling it around, uh, if you're manually straightening out the septum, you can kind of feel what's causing the deviation. Uh, and I find that just like you said with, with clamps, if you are applying clamps in such a way where you're straightening out that deviation uh, and then you pierce through, once you release the clamps, you're releasing that deviation and that's where you get like a really huge shift. So maybe the, you'll, you'll feel that the, the piercing is straight when just the needle is in and you still have the clamps on. But then when you remove the clamps and that like artificial straightening of the deviation, uh, the piercing will shift with it. So what I like to do is I like to mark the nose. I don't, I don't mark the actual piercing. I probe for what I would consider the sweet spot. So I'll probe around, I'll try to feel the sweet spot, I'll poke and prod and, and try to feel that deviation and get like a prediction of how that deviation moves. And then I'll select my piercing method to best suit the, the deviation. But I do very little marking um, uh, with deviated or non-deviated septums. So I would say my comfort zone would be septum clamps. Uh, and if I feel like I can apply the clamp in such a way, and I have like a, a wide variety of, of different uh, styles and, and shapes and size uh, septum clamps, if I can apply that in such a way where I'm not straightening out that deviation, then I'll stick with the clamps. If I feel like it's just impossible to do that, then I have to think about like, well, okay, what will give, give me the most stable tissue bracing? So my next step will usually be uh, a needle receiver tube. And then I'll, again, I'll probe the, the deviation and then I'll make the determination, okay, am I bracing this side? Am I bracing that side? Will I be having the client sitting or laying? Will I be standing above their head or maybe off to one side? So I kind of I overthink all these different factors and then I, I roll the dice. And I would say that I'm, I'm mostly comfortable with my results, um, but I, I have uh, misinterpreted some of those um, some of those factors. And then I, I thought that I've been doing a great job and then uh, the, the piercing is just like completely off and that's when I feel that I brought shame upon my house. So like when it comes to the actual piercing technique, do you feel like you pierce most of your septums in a similar way or do you take like different cards out of your deck? I pretty much pierce them all just freehand. Um, I don't use a receiving tube. Um, I'm left-handed and most people that are left-handed have a, um, a range of um, um, ambidextrousness, um, ambidexter, ambidexterity. That sounds like a they word. Have a, they have a, um, a level of ambidexterity with piercing. So a lot of left-handed piercers will pierce left or right-handed because just tasks day-to-day -day, a lot of the time rely on you being right-handed. So a lot of left-handed piercers, not all, but a lot will develop left and right-handed piercing because they're just used to using both hands for different tasks. So um, I will basically pierce the same way, just freehand, without a receiving tube, just with a blade needle, but depending on, um, like you were saying, maybe uh, how high up someone's nostrils go, if they have like maybe one nostril that's higher than another nostril, I'll make a determination as to which side to access the piercing from. So which, which direction to pierce in um, is still anatomy-based. Okay. So uh, to, to give you the short version is, I don't know, you know, whatever. You, you, when, it, when it comes to deviated septums, I don't, I don't think anybody can just uh, hand you a formula. I think that you need to be versatile. And uh, one of the, the best things is to shadow multiple piercers, to talk to multiple piercers, um, because 
Lola's methodology and my methodology might not make sense to you, but you might hear someone else's methodology and be like, oh yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And then once you actually get in there, then you can make the determination of like, okay, does it make sense? And does it give me good results? Um, just like everything else with, with body piercing and with life, there's, there, there isn't only one correct answer. Uh, sometimes there can be multiple correct answers. So be versatile and play around. You know, if you don't get a good result with A, then go to B. If that doesn't work, go to C and then continue on down the line. And hopefully you'll, you'll find a, a good trick or a good method for, for doing deviated septums. You want to read the next one? Advice for piercers moving states, especially baby piercers. That might be a little hard for me because I don't live where there are states. Okay, uh, it's hard to know what to look for in a new shop. What's acceptable pay because we love piercing so much. I think we forget to pay the bills with this. Ha ha. Well, what's... Ha ha was in the question. It wasn't me laughing at the question. It's a funny question. Um, I, I think we're kind of in a, a generational gap moment of the industry right now. I think that you have a lot of those piercers that are somewhere around that 10 plus year mark. They're the ones managing studios or owning studios or uh, making the decisions about who to hire for studios. And then you have this, um, this large group of piercers that have maybe like one to three years experience. And it seems like uh, the way that those 10 year plus piercers got to 10 plus years was by uh, maybe working their way up through one shop for quite a while and then moving when they had a lot of experience. And I think now you get a lot of piercers who get their foot in the door, they get a job somewhere, they get apprenticed somewhere, and they feel like they haven't really learned the wide world of piercing. They've learned maybe one person's perspective or they, they've learned something like pretty outdated. So once they kind of start to see that wide world out there, once they get exposure to things like the UK APP, the APP, different stuff on social media, and that reality kind of hits them in the face of like, well, I need to be able to move to be able to really grow. I don't think I can meet my full potential in the shop that I started in. You have that huge generational gap, and sometimes it can be really difficult for those piercers, those like one to three year experience piercers, the baby piercers, to uh, get their foot into a, a higher quality shop. So. I don't know. I don't know that I'm even the best person to answer that because, like, I've I've just owned my own studio for, uh, for twenty um, years. On the other side of the coin, you know, I was at the same studio for about nine years and then opened up my own. So I haven't really done a lot of traveling in, in different studios either. Um, so I'm not sure how best to, to answer that really. Well, what would um, you want to What would you want to hear from someone if they were in that baby piercer category and they wanted you to hire them? Like, what would you want to hear? Well. Well, the first thing that I would say just to the person that asked that question is um, you really need to ask yourself before you leave your job to go and look for more employment that you feel will advance your career, really make sure you've exhausted um, learning what you can in the place that you are because sometimes there can be ways to learn more, um, you know, do more with less is something that we're always saying, attend conferences, go to seminars, shadow of local studios, like there are a lot of people who again whether it's because they don't feel you know bold enough or that they have the connections enough um, that they will just stay in their studio and then think, well, I've learned as much as I can here. I'm going to go and work somewhere else now. But there is really a lot of things that you can do to continue your education in the same location that you're in, in different ways. 
Um, so I would say definitely consider that before just leaving for sure. Well, let's, we, I mean, we, we know a lot of people. We've gotten a lot of opportunities and made a lot of connections that some people might not have been able to. So let's maybe share some of the information that we've seen other people apply. Like uh, I've seen piercers working in a shop where maybe the owner doesn't necessarily prioritize moving piercing forward, but the door isn't shut to that. Um, I think one thing that owners are really open to is making more money. So if you can talk to them and say, well, you know, I think we can grow this shop. Like I've seen, like Guru is a really good example. That was like a tourist shop where they were doing uh, like flat price, kind of lower quality stuff. And then they, they grew that studio and now they're really just kind of cranking out high quality stuff. So. Yeah, I hate to say it, but I think that there is quite a lot of piercers in that one to three year group who reach a certain point and then they want to go and work, you know, they want to move to a bigger shell and want to work in a nicer studio. But what they forget is that the, I would say the majority of piercers that are between 10 and 20 years of experience right now, certainly the ones with their own studios, um, definitely spent long periods of time raising up the standards of the environment they were in they you know because there's not an infinite amount of shops so when new shops open up it's usually because someone else has worked somewhere else for a really long time and developed who they are not just as a as a piercer but just as a professional you know and future business owner as well so it's not that there's always been the same number of shops and people just move around um, so I think that there are a lot of kind of younger piercers now who hit that wall where the options are bring up my surroundings or go and work somewhere else and I think more and more are choosing not to bring up their surroundings and instead to go and work somewhere else and I'm not sure why that is because it's cool on the internet it's not oh, yeah, it's not so much cool on the internet but I think it's because they've seen other piercers like they've they've seen like the the piercer dream out there yeah. the i i was a I, I went out on the road i was a professional guest piercer for a year or two and then i landed in this like ultra shop you know one of the top in the country kind of shop and now this and that and all this experience gold and and whatever um but for me in, in my career when i was just a few years in and i was a baby piercer uh, I had that same kind of path in front of me. It was like, well, I can leave and I can try to just be a, you know, a piercer in someone else's shop or like support someone else's career, or I can make the most of what I have and grow it and I can grow myself in, in the process. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I really would like to see more piercers trying to do that. If you feel like you've, as Lola said, like exhausted all your options. If you have a, a shop owner who absolutely does not care does not want to help, is not open to any sort of flexibility with your budget, then then maybe you have to make the decision to move on. But um, what I would want to see as a business owner is someone bring ideas to me and say like, well, I want to do this and I think we can do that. And hey, let's bring in some guest piercers so we can maybe learn, like take those other piercers that are out there on the road and say like, hey, you want to come in here and talk to me about like redoing our jewelry display or you know what new jewelry can we bring in or what new techniques can we use like strengthen yourself uh, and and you're gonna build your own career in the process there are very few high-end shops that are hiring out there uh, a lot of them they can very they can really be picky and they can choose they can put out uh, like a help wanted post and they can get all the the best of the best and they can pick and choose those one or two people that they want uh, and it can be really difficult for it to be seen as that. So 
maybe you can go from a low quality studio to a mid-level studio, but it's really difficult to just jump and think that you're going to be able to go into a shop that has five statums and nothing but gold and, and can pay you uh, as much money as you want to make. I, I think it's probably a smarter decision to try to develop your yourself as a piercer, but try to develop the work environment that you're currently in. And just in terms of like practical advice, if you are considering moving or if you're planning on moving, um, first of all, I would say you need to thoroughly vet the place that it is that you're thinking of moving to. This isn't as big of a problem in the UK because it is literally smaller, the communities are smaller. It's really hard to find a shop that someone hasn't heard of or isn't at least loosely familiar with. Um, so in that sense, the community is a little bit more um, family-like in some ways. America is so much bigger. You can easily, you know, move somewhere where you're a hundred miles away from anybody that you've, you know, even met on the internet, which isn't quite possible in the UK. Um, so make sure that if you're going to one of those places that's a little bit more off the grid, that you actually do some research into what nature of a place that it is um, in terms of things like. Um, your payment for working there, that's all stuff that you need to have established. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say what it is that you should be earning because I just have no idea what your roles would be, what your experience level is, what the local economy is like. You know, like if you think that you're going to earn the same amount of money working in one city and then moving to another town that's in a different state, it's going to be completely different. So it's not really for other piercers to tell you what it is that you should be asking for, but you need to look at what it's going to cost you to live in that location. Um, and another thing is once you've agreed on what it is that you're going to be paid, I would also try and establish from the beginning, is that something that can change? Is there going to be an opportunity to renegotiate these terms? Is there going to be any kind of an annual change made to this? You know, And if they're not even comfortable dealing with that conversation, um, then you know potentially it might seem like this isn't a place that you might want to move to. If they're not prepared to have those discussions with you, it might not seem terribly legitimate. Um, you know, having said that though, like I said, I worked at one place for almost a decade and I was just a self-employed piercer the entire time I was there. I never had any kind of an employment contract. I never had any, what you would call, you know, like legal rights or anything like that. And we still had a perfectly professional and valid relationship for the best part of 10 years. So. Um, I think that it's really important to be able to at least maybe do a guest spot or part-time work at a place um, ahead of time if you're considering a big move for at least a week, preferably a couple of weeks or maybe um, over a couple of different visits. Ask if they would be okay with you working um, part-time for a couple of weeks just to really see how the place runs day to day when they're not on their best behavior. That would probably be what I would suggest if you were thinking of doing like a major packing up your life and moving. But even then, that's just me thinking about what I would want to do because I, I've never been in that situation living in such a smaller country. There's a lot to unpack there, but that's got a lot of really good points. So one thing is uh, if, if I was going to go in and work in another studio, one of the first questions I would want to ask myself is, well, why do they have a spot open in this studio? Uh, I think now, like that's probably not a question I would have asked myself a year ago, but now I start to see um, so many unpleasant things come out about so many different shop environments. Uh, and then you, you, you realize like, okay, well, this person left because uh, maybe they just had different things they wanted to do in life. But sometimes shops have openings because they've had to 
uh, fire people who didn't really work on the team. And sometimes it's because it's just not a good team to be part of. So I would also want to stop and ask myself like, okay, you know, how many people have come and gone in the last few months or the last year? Uh, is there anyone that I know who's ever worked in one of these shops before? Are, are there any online reviews? You know, maybe read what the customers think about the shop vibe and the shop environment. Uh, but as Lola said too, uh, try to test out the shop. You know, are they open to you going and doing a guest spot? Uh, do you get the opportunity to talk to the other staff members and, and maybe ask what the, the shop dynamics are like? Um, are you going to be able to talk to the shop manager, talk to the shop owner and know what their ex expectations would be for a long-term staff member? Uh, a lot of a lot of studio environments can feel like a, like a family for better or worse. Um, some can feel like a corporate structure for better or worse and that doesn't mean that that's going to be the kind of environment that you want to work in necessarily. So it's not just about well, you know, do they have a good reputation for piercing or do I get like piercer points online or something like that? Sometimes it's not even just about pay. Uh, sometimes it's about the, the lifestyle and, and, and the, the real working environment of the shop. So I would want to know a lot of those things. When it comes to pay, uh, like Lola said too, there are so many factors that go into it. Um, you know, are you just a piercer, air quotes? You know, are you a piercer slash manager? Are you a piercer slash manager slash salesperson? Are you managing jewelry inventory? Like how many hats are you gonna to have to wear when you're working there? And all those different things are going to um, affect uh, potential pay. And, and really when it comes down to it, like have a, have a rational expectation and understanding of what your value is as a body piercer. If you are that one to three year experience, you know, are you going to have to be completely retrained? What kind of tools are you are you bringing to, to their studio? All those different things. So it's a really, really long conversation. I feel like we could do a whole episode yeah. just on that. Um, but really think about it. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm an overthinker. I, I think um, maybe that's not so great sometimes. But if, if I had to move to another shop, um, by choice or by circumstance, like I would want to know a lot of different factors. Um, but testing it out would probably be one of my, my biggest suggestions. You know, do a guest spot or maybe even just shadow there for a little while. Go and check it out. If it's something you can drive to, if it's something you can take a short trip to, just go and check it out and see what the feel of the, of the shop is and, and what the expectations of their staff members are before you just pick up and, and move your whole life because you don't want to end up in a, in a negative situation, whether it's personal or professional. Next question. Uh, wait, did I look at the wrong section? No, we were right here. Okay. All right. Next question. Nostril and oral piercings. Is it safe during the pandemic? So this again, um, can be, and most likely will eventually be an entire episode of the, uh, of the podcast one day. So I'll try to keep it a little bit short on my side of it. And I, I want to say that there isn't a universal answer. I see a lot of people being really passionate about this discussion online and you have to realize that it's not static. Um, just talking about in the US, there are 50 states and they're all going to have their own curve. They're all going to have their uh, different numbers of positive cases, people in the hospital, demands on infrastructure, risk of transmission. They're all going to have all these different factors. 
it's completely unrealistic for me to answer that question as to whether or not a nostril or oral piercing would be safe in California, Texas, New York, Wisconsin, Florida, New Hampshire, all as one blanket statement. Uh, I would say uh, make the determination for yourself and your studio and, and realize that there are going to be very high quality piercers offering nostril piercings because they've looked at the numbers and they've determined that it's safe. There are also going to be those same piercers who are looking at their numbers and determining, well, I, I don't feel that it is safe. And then you're going to have the opposite side of the coin where people are making their decision based on financial things or maybe just not even paying attention to the, any of the information and just getting back to business as normal. Uh, it's not something that you should be making a blanket statement on for the rest of the world or even just the rest of your country. If we're talking about your city, your state, your region, then certainly I would imagine you'll be making uh, determinations on that, but uh, it, it's not going to be static. It's not a, a worldwide answer. So what's what's your thought on that? Well, the first thing that I would like to point out is that body piercing in general is never risk-free. So what we do every day that we go to work since we started body piercing is we mitigate risk. Um, so. We basically make determinations, we make decisions based around what's going to give us the safest work environment, give our clients the safest client experience. We use PPE, we use our judgment, um, we write plans, uh, exposure control plans and, and that kind of thing and safe piercing practice plans for our studios. So this, this isn't a completely new concept is what I'm trying to say, um, living uh, in the piercing world post-coronavirus. It's, it's not really something we haven't done before, it's just on a completely different scale um, than maybe what we're used to dealing with. But as a concept, it's really not massively different from what we have done before in our careers. So I think it's important to just recognize that first of all. Um, I completely agree with Ryan when he says this is something that is going to depend on the region that you are in. Um, the, the R number, do you, do you have the R number in America? Does it refer to as that? I don't even know in, what that means. In the UK, it's called the R number, and the R number is the rate of viral reproduction in your area. So, um, for example, the the viral number needed uh, the R number needed to be below one to bring it under controllable levels. That's the rate of reproduction, and the the R number for your location is going to vary wildly from town to town and city to city. And it's a moving target, and it's going to be something that changes. Um, so it's not like you have the one number and that's what you're going to be working with going forward. It may be something that you're taking into consideration, offering services and then shutting down offering services. What I would say is if you're working with somewhere where the R number is so low that you feel that you can with confidence, because again, unless it's uh, a legal requirement, it is still down to you to make the determination in most areas as to whether or not you can work under a face mask. Um, I think in England, for example, right now, um, you're not allowed to perform any work underneath the face mask. But um, these are, again, things that are changing all the time, becoming clearer all the time. And then there are other locations where it's up to you to basically, if you're wanting to do work in higher risk areas, you have to justify how you can do that safely. Um, and it's actually on you um, to prove to your local authorities how you can do that safely and justify it. So that's a determination that you need to make based on the information that you have that's current and up to date. 
But what I will say that you can do is if you're working somewhere where you're fortunate enough that the R number is so low that your risk of coronavirus is generally very low, which is fantastic for you, and you feel confident performing nasal or oral piercings with the appropriate PPE and other safety measures in place like air ventilation and that kind of thing, then you also have a choice as to whether or not you're going to promote that work. Um, I would argue that it could be harmful for you to promote that work and post pictures of nostril and septum and oral piercings right now because you have to acknowledge the fact that other piercers in other parts of your country um, where the outbreak is still much worse are going to see you performing that work and then think, oh, well, they're not that far from me or they're in the same country as me, so uh, I can just perform that work too, even though their situation could be wildly different. So I would say that whether you're doing it or whether you're not doing it, you have to make those decisions for yourself based honestly on the information that you're presented with uh, and update and change that information as it, or, sorry, update and change um, your working practices as the information changes too. But just remember that you do have a choice as to what it is that you're promoting. Um, so I would certainly recommend against studios um, in particular uh, in the US at the moment that are doing nasal and oral piercings because it could be safe for them to do so in the region that they're in. I would recommend against them posting and sharing photos of it because the more normalized that becomes, the more likely it is for studios that aren't in a safe locations to see that and mimic that behavior. As an example, uh, where I am, we've had 6,000 total confirmed cases of COVID. Uh, in Massachusetts, they've had 113,000 cases. So there could be an argument as to uh, maybe there's, there's one level of risk in this state versus one level of risk in this other state. Uh, if I were to be putting out work that just says, well, nostril piercings are fine everywhere and just put out that blanket statement on social media, people that are in higher risk areas, lower risk areas, uh, they, they might kind of interpret that incorrectly and think like, oh, it's fine for me to just start doing that again. So if you are going to be performing these things, unless you're willing to post this multi-paragraph explanation, well, I feel comfortable offering this with this level of personal protective equipment for the practitioner because my numbers are here and my R number has been been lowered, my curve has been flattened, all these different things, uh, it's irresponsible to just put that information out there. So uh, realize that you need to make the determination for yourself. Lots of different health departments and different regions are going to uh, factor in um, phases, things like that. Uh, in the U.S., there are very large outbreaks in some areas where they're actually scaling back their phases and they're saying, okay, we're going to go back to phase one. We're not going to allow this, that, or whatever. You really need to pay attention to those numbers. Uh, try not to just let your bills pressure you into to doing stuff. Uh, in my area, if I wanted to make the determination of are we going to be doing nostril piercings, I would want to look at those numbers. And if the numbers were high, I wouldn't even want to go any farther in, in my decision-making process. So uh, again, it's not going to be a blanket statement. Uh, and if you do decide to do something like this, uh, obviously you're going to be trying to protect your, yourself and your clients as much as possible. But I would say it's inappropriate to be promoting that work out there right now. And if you are just put, posting something to, to fill up your social media, you need to say, okay, this was done pre-COVID. We are not offering these services like this. But I would say in general, maybe just don't post anything that's under the mask. Be a, a good influence and get your clients thinking about ear piercings, navel piercings, nipple piercings, all those different alternatives and maybe try to distract them from thinking about nostril and septum piercings so that there's maybe a little bit less pressure on you and your colleagues to have to make those tough decisions.
And just to point out as well, because obviously I'm located in the UK, um, people have been asking what the UK APP's position is on the subject, and our position is you have to follow um, what your your local laws are, and there are things that are being implemented and changed all the time, which has been something that has been difficult to um, communicate effectively with our members because it is literally, you know, our local governments are just making it up and changing it almost on a weekly basis now um, regarding, regarding different personal service industries and that kind of thing. So unfortunately, it's not a case of there being um, a yes or no answer for a lot of different services. Um, Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland and England also each um, have their own responses to the the COVID-19 back to work reopening um, plan as well. So um, different dates, different guidelines are in place. So it's really important that you pay extra close attention to what's happening in your country or your region, as opposed to what's happening potentially even just 50 miles down the street across the border. They could be operating under completely different legalities. So the first thing you have to do is check what's legal, then you should check what's ethical. Uh, also realize that as body piercers, we have a, a very specific bias. We want to be able to do everything and our clients might not understand that there's all this science that goes into it. Uh, but in my area in New Hampshire, uh, we have a, a Department of Health. They have epidemiologists. They have professionals who are monitoring all this data, all the data coming in from hospitals, uh, all the data coming in from test results. And they're making those determinations and they're releasing uh, body piercing, body art regulations based on, on that data. So uh, it, it's really important to follow your, your state, your regional, your local regulations and pay attention to the phases. Uh, and then again, if it is legal, then make the, term, the determination if, if you feel personally safe and if you feel like your level of protection is high enough to be able to offer those services. You can also look at comparable services, uh, other aesthetics, things like that, uh, dental industries, uh, what are they doing to protect their staff. Um, but again, you should really be defaulting to the data and not your personal bias as a, a body piercer. Okay, next question. Conch piercings, downsizing, healing, sleeping? Sleeping? Um, so, well, I guess we'll go into them. Well, downsizing and healing are kind of part of it. Uh, conch piercings are kind of a pain in the butt sometimes. I remember when I got my conches, I mean, I, I punched my conches at a really large size and they were miserable to heal. Um, when it comes to conch piercings, do you find that your clients are having an, an easy time, a tough time, mixed? Well, when I got my conch pierced, I've always been really bad at healing ear piercings in particular, and I didn't get most of the ones that I have till I was in like my late 20s. Um, and I got my conch pierced because it was, it was a piece I really wanted to wear, and I was totally prepared for it to be a nightmare, and it actually turned out to be one of the easiest healing piercings that I'd had. Um, and you know, I had it downsized and maybe that's because I was so careful with it and I was so vigilant with the aftercare. Sometimes the piercings you're most scared about getting end up being the ones that heal the easiest because you are just like that extra bit vigilant and careful with them. Um, for me, conch piercings don't particularly stand out um, as being a hard to heal piercing. I think there are a few things that stick out in my mind just off the top of my head, um, when you're doing a conch piercing and you're doing any kind of large flat-backed attachment, 
it's important to let sh to let your customer know that they are going to have to work to keep the underside um, of that attachment clean because obviously your conch is a dish shape and if you're putting a large flat even some kind of really nice big flat gold attachment in the conch that's not going to create a perfect seal against the skin it's going to create a, a kind of little empty area of space where a lot of discharge is going to become built built up and impacted onto the, the underside of the disc and that's something that is really common in making really fancy lovely conch piercings look terrible really mm -hmm. quickly and it's it's such a simple solution so I think that it's important, not just with conch piercings, but with all piercings, to remember that really big, elaborate, extravagant jewellery can be great, but you can't lose sight of the fact that it's a wound and it's going to do what a wound needs to do primarily. So um, you just need to make sure that your clients understand that just because they're paying more money doesn't mean they're going to heal easier. They're still going to have to, to do those little maintenance things. I regularly have to take out the attachment that I wear in my conch because it's very big and, and just clean the back of it down, even though my conch is a few years old now because my skin is still skin and I, and I still need to, to clean it. Um, another thing that I would say as well is I am just, I never feel that there's an appropriate situation to pierce a conch with a ring. Well, um, before we get to that, yeah. what are you telling your clients to do to clean under a large end piece? Because I think that if you just tell clients just that, like I'm sure you have something else that you tell them, but I, I, I had the same kind of issue when I told clients like, well, you know, try to try to keep dried buildup from accumulating under the end piece. And if I didn't give them the, the rest of that yeah. explanation, they would end up moving their jewelry around a lot and they would end up irritating it, usually by dragging stuff in from the back or by trying to pick at it with their mm -hmm. fingers or something. So now I tell them, well, water pressure in the shower and try to do it from the beginning so that you don't really give the chance for, for a lot of stuff to accumulate, you know, water pressure in the shower. And if that doesn't work, maybe like a, a wet swab. Well, I think some of it is dependent on the anatomy. You know, sometimes the ear is a bit more accessible than others. And obviously the real problem for me is after it's downsized and there is no room at all to really get anything underneath that disc. Um, and in those situations, I like to suggest that um, my clients use uh, an interdental brush. And I wouldn't suggest Water pick that would be I, the US term. Is it, it's not the same as a pick though, because an interdental brush is like a tiny mascara brush. Oh, that's That's what it looks like. It's, it's a little tiny mascara brush and it's designed to rub between your teeth and against your gums. So this is something that is designed to be used against the most delicate skin on your body, which is your gums. Your it's disposable, it's hygienic, um, and they're also bendable, so they can be bent into different shapes, um, and they're single use only. So it's not the same as like a toothpick or a floss, it's, and you can get them incredibly small as well. Um, and that's why I find that they're so good for this task. And I wouldn't suggest that you used one every day because I feel that it could make the skin or around the entry uh, or exit wound a little raw. But I would say maybe once a week or so after a hot shower to just very gently um, drag a little interdental brush underneath the disc. And See, you'll I've find never that... even heard that term. I don't even know if we have those in the States. Yeah, really? Yeah. Well, it's like a little fuzzy caterpillar. And like a little pipe cleaner for your yeah, teeth? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And you get huh. them really small. Um, and uh, they're, like I said, soft, hygienic. They're designed to be you know, rubbed against your gums. So these really aren't going to harm that very delicate skin. 
Um, and what you'll find is after a nice hot shower, if you just um, gently rub one underneath uh, the jewellery, that it's going to bring out on the bristles just those little bits of dried in, impacted discharge that you haven't been able to dislodge. Gross. Um, it is, but you know, it's, it gets it off of there without them having to tamper or move their jewellery. And it's obviously so soft as well, it's not going to harm any kind of a gold piece either. Mm. So going back to the ring thing, uh, I would agree that I, I would never give the person an option to start with a ring. I think that a lot of clients still come in with that because for whatever, you know, the internet, they might have just seen those. They might have seen, you know, long-term healed piercings with rings, which can look super cute. So they come in asking for that. I always, I always basically tell them the same thing. A, a ring would be appropriate in a fully healed piercing, but for initially, uh, I, I would prefer some sort of a post style. So how long are you making people wait for a ring? I would suggest about six months. Same. Um, that's kind of um, what I usually explain to customers is it's not like I'm some kind of like gatekeeper preventing you from wearing the jewelry that you want to wear. You'll know when it's appropriate for you to wear that style because your piercing will have been very healthy and not been presenting kind of new piercing problems for several weeks, if not months. It's not going to be weeping. It's not going to be discharging. It's going to be very healthy. Um, I see it all the time with nose piercings. People need to understand that just because they leave the piercing a certain amount of time, that doesn't mean that it's healthy. So I really try and get across to them, if you turn up here in you know four months or six months or however long your time period is, and there's like a, you know, like a cyst or lump on your piercing, it still doesn't mean we can put in a ring. We have to then address that problem. So I try and get across to my customers. I'm going to give them all of the tools and information that they need to take care of their piercing properly. And then if everything goes as it should, at this time period, approximately, they should be safe to wear the ring. If they're having any issues during that time period that they're away from the studio, come immediately back in, we'll help resolve the issue so they can go on with their healing. So I do try and get across that it's not just about the time because earlier on in my career, I, you know, it happened a lot with nose piercings where people would say, I want to wear a really snug, tight fitted ring. I'd say, okay, well, it's about this long. People would come in after that exact amount of time, but maybe they would have like a bump or a mm. pimple on their piercing. And I would be like, well, but you we, gave them that, that line. Yeah, so then exactly. they get upset that they can't exactly. wear the ring. So that's why I try really hard now to make it you know, a little bit less about the time period mm -hmm. and be a bit more flexible. And I'll say, you know what, if you come in after five months and it looks perfect and you're not having any problems and everything's going great and you want to wear a ring, I'm more than happy to put one in for you. Um, but, you know, if you come in after seven months and you're still having some healing issues because you're just healing very slowly and you've experienced a lot of unfortunate complications, then it's going to take a little bit more work. So it's about me listening to what your body is saying, not about you just listening to what I'm saying, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm not a, a strict anti-ring person. I'll use rings in lots of piercings initially, but conch piercings in particular are one of the, the few that I'm really hardline uh, against. So what about downsizing? When would you typically tell someone to come in for a downsizing and what would be the factors that would go into your suggestion? I usually suggest between four and six weeks for a conch piercing for downsizing okay. because I feel that conch piercing because it is kind of a, a bowl shape when you think about fluid retention when you have any kind of fluid based swelling it will usually fall down in mm -hmm. accordance to gravity and i just feel that with conch piercings for that reason alone it can just take a little bit longer for that last little lingering bit of swelling to go away from the piercing, particularly at the back. So you could probably come back in in three weeks and have it downsized, but another two weeks from that, 
it'll probably be just a little bit loose again. Um, I mean, you could do more than one downsize, but for me personally, for a conch piercing, as long as somebody is fine to not sleep on it, keep their hair away from it, and be careful with things like, you know, glasses and headphones for that time period, if they can give it a solid four to six weeks, it means that I can downsize it to just a really comfortable fitted size that they can then wear for the duration of their healing. What about you? What would you say? For me, I... I... I kind of stretch things out a little bit longer. You know, when, when I'm going through the aftercare, I usually tell people, typically this piercing is going to be uh, four to six months minimum healing. And I usually try to steer people towards somewhere around halfway through healing for downsizing when it comes really? to cartilage piercing. Yeah, a lot longer for me. I would feel that what I've found is when people don't have it downsized at the earliest opportunity, they start catching it on stuff, mm -hmm. then they start developing. This happens for me a lot with tragus piercings. It'll kind of get to the point where everything will be going great, but maybe a person won't be able to come in. And then a few weeks later, I'll get a message saying, hey, everything was going really great, but I couldn't make it in. And then the other day I caught it really badly and now I have these lumps and now we're dealing with treating the lumps and getting them to go down. and that's going to then prevent them from getting downsized. So for me, as soon as it's at a comfortable, stable point where the swelling is gone, I don't want any of that extra length there anymore because that is going to be the number one risk in them then snagging and developing a problem that's going mm. to impact the rest of healing. So for me, that kind of four to six week period is like a real sweet spot for downsizing cartilage piercings if they if they need it then. Do you think any of that might be related? Now I really try to think a lot more about regional differences with climate. Like, uh, you know, Glasgow, as we both know, has a lot more humidity. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe that could potentially be a factor. But I, I was finding that if I was having people, there are some piercings where I'll say, as soon as you feel like you have, um, you know, maybe let's say one week of consistently the piercing is a little bit loose, uh, then, then it's okay to come in for a downside. That could be two weeks, that could be four weeks, depending on what the piercing is. Um, but with certain piercings, I find that if I have them come in as soon as they have a little bit of wiggle room, that I change it over and then uh, there can be, not for everybody, but there can be points where they sleep on it, they do this, they do that, and the, the piercing isn't healed enough at a point where it's stable for that, that expansion, and then it starts to puff back up again. It's not all the time, mm. um, but I also couple that with the fact that there were points in my career where I was really adamant about like you need to come in at this specific date range for your downsizing and then I'll, most of the people just weren't so yeah. I don't know it's it's tough well I think you're completely right about the climate climate is an enormous factor when it comes to healing and downsizing when you just consider you know living somewhere that it just is constantly damp it's constantly raining um, people are a lot more likely to have wet hair um, just everything about the environment is a little bit more difficult for healing piercings in some ways. And I have found that proportionately, it's a lot less common that I have to upsize something that wasn't ready. So much so that if I'm in a, it's so rare that if I'm in a situation where if something needs to be upsized, you know, I'll just upsize it, eat the cost, and then, you know, ask them to come back again in however many weeks. Um, whereas, the amount of people that I've had over the years who have sent me that message to say, hey, everything great was going really good. I was going to come in and then I couldn't make it and now I've knocked it and now it's lumpy and then we're dealing with that for months on end. It's proportionately so much higher to deal with those problems. So I don't want any exposed post on the jewelry past the point that that initial 
um, swelling from the, the piercing being made has gone down because I think it's much more of a hazard for me to have that there in terms of chemicals landing on the post and working their way through the piercing. People playing with the, the, the piercing and touching it even though they're advised not to and then that being pushed through the piercing. I mean, it's literally just a, a track pushing jewelry through, pu pushing bacteria through the piercing all day. Um, so for me, the, the risk of that is far higher um, than the risk of potentially, you know, in rare cases, having to upsize something, which can still happen. It's always a little bit of a guessing game. But for me, that's where I've had the, the best results, I think. When it comes to the backing for your initial post-style jewelry, uh, what's your opinion between a ball and a disc? Because my thought process is, I, I usually, since the the jewelry is going to be kind of floating off the back of the ear i usually start them with a ball so i don't have to worry quite as much about things getting tangled and then i say once you downsize then we'll switch you to a flat back what's your thought on that honestly i have never had a, a significant notable difference between one or the other hmm. i use a flat back um, i used to use a ball um, and i wouldn't say for me personally that I've felt any major difference between the two. Obviously, in terms of it being downsized, I would prefer the flat back very much. But for it being fresh, I haven't really had any terrible problems about having a flat disc any more than I have having a bead. Um, the main thing that I would say is whether you're using a disc or a bead is make sure that you try your best to counterbalance it properly against the attachment that you have on the front. If you're using a big, huge, fancy attachment for the front, you need a significantly larger bead or disc at the back. Um, so it's not possible to have like a, a three millimeter, um, you know, neo-metal back disc and then have like a six millimeter jeweled attachment on the front. I think that that is one of those like little fundamental mistakes that some people make maybe when they're using more elaborate jewelry and they're, they're not as experienced as they could be is just again understanding the practicalities of what it is that jewelry needs to do so i would say to make sure that it's counterbalanced as well as possible but i'd be lying if i said i, I had any major feedback between discs and beads uh one thing that i would want to put on people's minds for for conch piercings and really just ear piercings in general right now is I've been back to work for a few weeks. You're not work back to work just yet, but you will be soon. Um, face masks, ear loops uh, are going to make a lot of different ear piercings significantly more difficult to heal for people. So when people come in, same thing as like uh, to use an industrial as an example again. If people come in for an industrial piercing and they wear glasses. You're really going to take a close look at where their glasses are touching and pressing against their ear before you select your placement for the industrial. Uh, when people are coming in and you're talking about different kinds of ear piercings, really take a minute to look at the back of their ear with the face mask they're wearing when they walk through the door. And just to reiterate, you know, they should be wearing a face mask when they walk through your door. Uh, you might need to say, well, you know, this piercing that you want, it's not really going to be compatible with this face mask. Some of those ear loop face masks are going to be just pressing on the entire back of the ear. So you might need to suggest a different style of face mask something that maybe ties behind the, the head rather than loops behind the ear, or you might need to give them a, a different suggestion for the actual piercing location. But I, I ran into that quite a few times already because since we can't do so many other piercings that we might want to do, we're focusing a lot more on other body parts like the ear, uh, and people need to be able to live with those face masks, especially in this day and age, and they need to be able to wear them for, for weeks or months on end. Maybe not around the clock, but they need to be able to wear them. 
what about sleeping for for conch piercings? Do you give people any sort of particular advice other than just like maybe don't sleep directly on it if you can help it? Yeah, I don't have any that's special for conch piercings other than to try and not sleep on it, especially during the early stages of healing. So I don't have any that's specific for conches, but I would certainly say that's one significant reason to not pierce a conch with a ring. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the ways that I explain to people um, why they don't want to have their conch pierced with a ring is because like when we do any piercing as i said before we're mitigating risk with every decision that we make so there is no perfect um, way to perform piercing but there are ways that we know are tried and tested that are the most successful that's really all that we're doing and those things can be different region to region again climate is is really significant in healing as you just pointed out but with conch piercings I don't really see a way where the, the benefits of having an oversized ring and a conch piercing outweigh the risks that create. So the way I explain it to my customers is, if I was to pierce your conch with a bar, 90% of the jewelry is being worn internally and like 10% is being worn externally. It's probably more like 80-20 realistically, but say 90% of the jewelry is internal, 10% is external, and that means that 10% is what's causing an exposure risk to the inside of the piercing. When you have a, a ring in your conch piercing, it completely reverses that number. 90% of the jewelry is exposed, 10% is worn internally. That is gonna create an enormous amount of potential contamination as that ring rotates back and forth through the piercing, which it will do regardless of the of if it has a bead on it or not. That is an enormous range of motion um, to see saw through a fresh wound or open piercing that's exposed to the, to the outside world, um, that your hair is gonna rest against, that your phone is gonna to touch, that your pillowcase is gonna to touch. All of that is gonna be then rotated internally into the wound. Um, so for me personally, the risk with conches, especially because of that massive size differential, um, is something that I just don't consider to be worth the infection risk. And every time I see a conch piercing with a ring, or probably not every time, but nine out of 10 times, if someone comes to see me because they have a conch ring, it's because they have a conch ring with a cyst or an abscess on the back, mm -hmm. every time. Um, because if I was seeing them heal successfully, then I'll probably have a bit of a different opinion on it than I do. Sure. Like, not to get into, like, the nostril with rings discussion, but I think uh, with certain factors in place, you can pierce a nostril with a ring, you can do it safely. With a conch piercing, there are so many factors working against people being able to heal that successfully that I really don't see it as a, a viable uh, initial option. Agreed. So let's do one more question, and then okay. we can leave the rest for, for part two. So... The last question for part one would be, uh, I'm stretching my lobes with single flare with a single flare glass plug, but my end goal is a double flared tunnel. Do I need to stretch to the same gauge size or do I stretch to the next size to allow for that double flare? Um, the answer is yes uh, and no. Um, when you are stretching with a, a, a single flare, you are in increasing a very small size, um, maybe one millimeter, you know, one gauge size up. If you were trying to stretch with double flared jewelry, you would basically be doubling that, that size difference. So you don't necessarily need to, like let's just say as an example, you want to stretch to zero gauge, uh, which would be what in millimeters? Eight millimeter? I think it's nine. No, I think it's eight and then zero, zero is 10 or nine, is um, nine to 10. Okay, so let's say you wanted to stretch to, to zero uh, and then you wanted to wear double flare. What I would basically say is 
um, stretch to zero, and then wait the amount of time that you would wait between stretches before you wear double flare jewelry again. Don't stretch with double flare jewelry, but you don't need to do an extra stretch and then drop back down to be able to wear double flare. Does that make sense the way I explain it? A little. <laughs> so what would you tell someone? Um, well, stretched lobes are a long-term modification. So it doesn't really make a huge difference if you have to put an extra month or two months into getting to your gold size. Because gold, si gold sizes are something that could take years to get to. Mm -hmm. um, so when it comes to stretching, you are thinking in years, um, potentially months, but never weeks. So if you were, I'm just going to do millimeters and then you can convert them if you like, because my brain doesn't no, work millimeters the other way. Um, like say, for example, you were five millimeters in a single flared glass plug and you wanted to wear a five millimeter double flared glass plug. Um, I think at that size, there's not going to be a significant enough weight in the plug that you're wearing to just help loosen up your lobe a little bit as it probably would do at larger sizes. And if you ultimately only wanted to wear a double flared glass plug that was five millimeters, then yes, the best thing to do would be to just stretch up to six millimeters with a single flare, wear that till it's comfortable, safely and comfortably insert your double flared five millimeter glass tunnel uh, and then just keep that in place if that's what you wanted to do. Um, if that was your ultimate goal. Um, if it was just the case that you're a certain size and depending on what style of jewelry you wear, you might need to fluctuate ever so slightly. There are a, a, an awful lot of really lovely um, weight designs now um, that you can wear from as little as eight gauge or 3.2 millimeters, I think, in a, in a healed, comfortably stretched lobe. So if it was just the case that, say, you were uh, five millimeters in single flare, um, if you had a, a pair of weights that you wanted to wear that you maybe wore for a couple of days, you could probably find that you could get the double flare in pretty comfortably um, if you were wearing that just to kind of relax and loosen up the skin. And remember as well, when you initially stretch your lobe, it does need at least a month to recover the elasticity that it possesses for you to be able to comfortably change your jewelry and try different styles so do you know why i remember i remember learning this in well i don't even know if it's accurate but i remember hearing this in an app class you do you, you say it years and years ago uh, it's because your body needs to produce more keratin uh, keratin is uh, one of the the factors into the pliability of your skin so if you're stretching and you're stretching so rapidly that you don't allow your body to produce that new keratin and make your skin pliable again, uh, if you uh, apply that force, if you apply that stretch, all you're doing is building up scar tissue. You're not building up healthy tissue. So that's why you need to wait in between sizes. Um, just because you can shove a larger piece of jewelry in it does not mean that your your piercing is ready to accept that size it just means that you shoved it in and you're basically either eroding healthy tissue away or you're forcing your body to create scarring uh, you need to give your body uh, several weeks to be able to bring new keratin produce that new elasticity in your skin to make it healthy to be able to wear the next size up i think one thing that we've probably all heard is piercers is a client say well that wasn't even sore so can we not just do the next size and you're like no because it's not supposed to be really sore it's not supposed yeah. to be traumatic um a lot of people actually it's amazing how many customers feel cheated when their stretching isn't painful and traumatic it's like they don't feel that it's gone far enough stretching shouldn't be painful and traumatic it should feel tight and snug maybe even a little throbby but there shouldn't be ripping tearing um 
happening when you're stretching your piercing. Um, it should just feel a little uncomfortable and that's it. So if that's happening, then that means that you're doing it properly. It doesn't mean, well, I should just try and go ahead and do the next size and see how much I can withstand. It's not a, a you know, a duration activity. It's a re uh, it's a really long-term modification. Yeah, it's it's a passive process. It's not really an active process. It's an active process in the, in the fact that you're changing jewelry along the way. Um, but... I think the concept of tapers has really uh, confused a lot of people. Tapers don't necessarily need to be used to expand the size of a piercing. My ideal process for stretching a piercing, those clients where I, I have uh, like long-term stretching clients where they have a goal and we kind of lay out a path for them, you know, uh, my ideal way to stretch their piercing is to just sterilize the jewelry put a little bit of water-based sterile lubricant on it and then just see if I can just wiggle it into their piercing. And that would be for like an earlobe with maybe like a glass single flare plug that has a bit of a rounded edge. I'm not talking about stretching something that might be threaded or different genital nipple things that are maybe a little bit more challenging to stretch. I'm, I'm talking specifically in terms of earlobes. And I think a lot of people have gotten confused because they see those acrylic you know, taper spikes with, with O-rings. If you're seeing something like that in a shop, um, that is meant to be worn as jewelry, as tacky as it is. That is not meant to stretch your piercing. Uh, stretching should not involve trying to force a taper through with like muscle. Um, if myself as a professional, if I'm using a taper to stretch a piercing, I'm going to be watching, I'm going to be feeling, I'm going to be communicating with the client. Like if you feel too much tension, let me know. If I feel a lot of resistance, my answer to that is not going to be, well, push harder. My answer is going to be, okay, you're, you're probably not ready for this stretch. You know, let's give it another month or two or you know, maybe try wearing this jewelry in the meantime to make your piercing a little bit looser. Um, if you are forcing a taper through, uh, you're, you're basically doing that same thing. You're either eroding healthy tissue, building up scar tissue, maybe creating a tear, which will definitely build up scar tissue, will definitely restrict blood flow, and will make the next stretch much more challenging. So if you want to have uh, a healthy large gauge piercing it does take patience and it does take planning and you have to realize that if you wanted something like one inch earlobes like 25 millimeter earlobes um, that that's a, a, a dedication a commitment a process that could take potentially years to, to get there and you need to go very very slow and allow your body to naturally relax and loosen to the point where it can accept the next size you're not trying to force in the next size uh, it, it's it's all about uh, just working with your body Yes. <laughs> Sufficient response. Um, okay, so we're going to call it here for part one. Uh, we've done, I believe, seven questions, and we have a another seven to go. So we'll do a, a part two for you next week, and we've got some really good... I'll just give you a little bit of like a, a teaser. We've got one on sterile gloves, which will be a fun one. Everybody's got an opinion on that. Um, we've got one on... Uh, body mods versus piercing and differences there, uh, industry development, dealing with predatory behavior, mm -hmm. uh, especially when it comes to intimate piercings, and that's definitely something that Lola has a, a great opinion on. Uh, and then we've got some just stuff about uh, like fun piercings. So uh, come back next week for another episode where we answer your questions. 
And we, we forgot to do it at the beginning. What's all your info, social media and shop and all that? Um, my Instagram is lola.slider, and I work at Forest Piercing in Glasgow in Scotland. She's got like 40,000 Instagram followers because she's obviously more popular than me. Um, if you're not already following me on social media, give me a follow at Ryan PBA. I always forget to mention that, and maybe that's why I find it so difficult to grow my Instagram base. If I get another 80 followers, I can do that whole swipe up for a, a link in your story thing. I'm super jealous that, that she has that and she can do that. So uh, follow me on social media. Follow Ryan on social media. Yeah, see, she said it. She's popular. All right, so thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye. For more information about the show, visit piercingwizardpodcast.com or like Piercing Wizard Podcast on Facebook. For more info about your host, visit precisionbodyarts.com or search Ryan PBA on Facebook, Instagram, and Tumblr. If you enjoy the show, you can subscribe on iTunes, Apple Podcast, and Google Play. Music by Benny B. Blanco. Show copyright 2017, Precision Body Arts, LLC. All rights reserved.